Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Before we start today's actual episode, Holly, do you want to talk about our extremely exciting news? I really do. Uh, We are going to Paris. We are. I I know I said that in a way that sounds very chill, but inside my heart is screaming with delight. I also sounded a little like I was asking a question. (laughs) (laughs) But we are. And the cool thing is that listeners can come with us, which I'm very excited for. Yes. So if you would like to join us, uh, it is a a six-night trip in Paris. Uh, That's June 2nd through the 9th of 2019. Uh, It is run by a company called Define Destinations, and they put together everything. They handle all of the logistics. uh, And it's all themed around the French Revolution. But there's a good balance of planned activities and free time. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to let people know where they can go if they want to get more info? Yeah, if you come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, up in the top menu, which if you're on mobile, you got to click the little set of bars that does the menu. There's a there's a link that says Paris trip, exclamation point. <laughs> so yes, get your passport in order, brush up on your French if you wish, and come along with us because it's going to be super fun. But I will say you do not have to speak French. We have been assured. Uh, we yes. have a lot of local guides that are handling things, and the company uh, has has done trips like this many, many times. They assured us, you don't have to speak French. Just come along for the ride, and we'll all have fun. I was going to say, I know it's kind of a comical idea that we're going to France because my French is so bad, even though that's the only language I have ever formally studied to a real extent. We will have people who will help us navigate the language. I am doing a refresher course, but if uh, history, my personal history is any indicator, I will freeze up in the face of a native speaker because I'm so scared that they will just be like, you idiot, just shut up and speak English. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There was... There was one time early in my career that I needed to call for our CEO to approve something, and he was in Quebec. And when I called the number I was given, the person who answered answered in French. And at that point, I was much closer to my study of French than I am now. And when this person spoke to me in French, the only thing I could remember how to say was, where is the train station? So do not (laughs) let your... (laughs) uncertainty of French discourage you from checking out this trip. Uh, Again, that's missinhistory.com. Up at the top, there is a link that says Paris trip. Yeah. But in a much more excited way than I just said it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm super excited. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. I'm going to eat all the things and go to all the fabric stores. And uh, I'm going to probably cry a lot. (laughs) In a good way. In a happy way. Yeah. Uh, And now we will get into today's actual podcast. Today's subject is probably a familiar name to a lot of our listeners because it is Sojourner Truth. She was a very well-known abolitionist and women's rights activist in the 19th century. In 2016, it was announced that she was one of the five women's rights activists who would be on the back of the redesigned $10 bill because Alexander Hamilton is going to stay on the front. Uh, Her most famous speech is commonly titled, Ain't I a Woman? And you can find videos on YouTube of women like Kerry Washington and Alice Walker and Cicely Tyson performing this speech. Cicely Tyson's portrayal is from the unveiling of a bust of Sojourner Truth at the U.S. Capitol, and that made her the first Black woman to be represented in a sculpture at the Capitol. So she is not an obscure person 
who we are talking about today. And we're going to be talking about this part of the speech later. It is a very evocative speech, but the version that is the most well-known today was written down much later by a woman named Frances Gage. And Gage was inspired by an article in The Atlantic written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And both of these two women represented Sojourner Truth's way of speaking in a really stereotypical way based on what was expected of enslaved people from the South. But Sojourner Truth was not from the South. And because Ain't I a Woman is like literally the one thing that a lot of people know about Sojourner Truth, she is commonly imagined as an incredibly different person from who she actually was. And there is so much to talk about about her that even though we're doing two parts on her, it still feels like we are scratching the surface. So today we are going to talk about her early life and the first years of her religious work, during which time she was known as Isabella. And then part two, we will get into her life as Sojourner Truth. And I also wanted to note that we have had several listener requests to talk about her, including from Alexis, Kimberly, and Megan. Sojourner Truth was born around 1797 in Ulster County, New York, in the Hudson River Valley. And her parents uh, did not name her Sojourner, as Tracy said. Her name was Isabella, and she was nicknamed Belle. Isabella's mother, Elizabeth, was known as Betsy to the adults on the estate where they were enslaved. And the children called her Mau Mau Bet. I just wanted to clarify that the children called Elizabeth Mau Mau Bet. They didn't call Isabella that. Isabella's father, James, was nicknamed Bomfrey, which was from a low Dutch word for tree. That was his nickname because he was very tall and he stood very straight. So you will often see Sojourner Truth's name from birth listed as Isabella Bomfrey. But at the time, her last name was really considered to be the surname of whoever owned her. Isabella was the second youngest of between 10 and 12 children. And we don't know the exact number because records were not always thorough and because most of her older siblings were sold away from the family before she was old enough to remember or even meet them. Isabella and her family were enslaved by Colonel Johannes Hardenberg, and he and the other people around them in Ulster County were all Dutch. Isabella grew up speaking only Dutch. The Dutch community in the Hudson River Valley was very heavily slave-owning, There were farms and estates that had very large enslaved workforces, and Colonel Hardenberg was one of the largest slave owners in the area. When Colonel Hardenberg died in 1799, his son Charles inherited part of the property and all of the enslaved workforce. He started operating one of the residences on the estate as an inn, so the enslaved women and girls who had been working in the Hardenberg household went from being a family's domestic staff to essentially working in a hotel. Isabella was only about two when all of this happened, but as soon as she was able to work, she was expected to, alongside her mother. Elizabeth taught her daughter about what was expected of her and told her about her older siblings and taught her about God and about prayer. Elizabeth described God as a powerful being who lived in the sky and that if Isabella ever needed help, she should ask him for it. This whole idea of having a direct relationship with God and seeking his guidance and help would just be an ongoing part of Isabella's religious life for as long as she lived. In 1806, Charles Hardenberg died. Isabella was about nine years old at that time. And after his death, Isabella's remaining family were broken up and sold away from one another. And by this point, her father was elderly and he was considered to be a burden. So her mother was freed in order to care for him, even though she was also still considered able to work. 
Isabella, though, was sold to the Neely family, along with a flock of sheep, for a total of $100. John Neely Jr. understood a little bit of Dutch, but his wife did not speak Dutch at all. So in addition to not speaking the same language, Isabella had only ever lived in a Dutch household. She just didn't have any experience at all with English culture or English customs. And this led to a lot of problems. Isabella didn't understand what was expected of her, and she didn't understand what she was being asked to do when she was given instructions. And the Neelys would beat her when she didn't understand, among other reasons that they would beat her. On top of the beatings, there was just the day-to-day cruelty. As one example, she wasn't given shoes to wear, and she got severe frostbite on her feet during the winter. Isabella was occasionally able to see her father while she was enslaved by the Neelys, and she told him what was going on. And one of the customs in the New York Dutch community was that enslaved people could try to seek out new owners if they wanted a different situation than the one that they currently had. So her father asked around, focusing on Dutch slave owners who had a reputation for being kind. Not long after, Isabella was sold again, this time to a man named Martimus Shriver, who ran a tavern. This was kind of a low-class establishment, so the work could definitely be dirty and difficult, but it was better than being abused by the Neelys. In 1810, at the age of about 13, Isabella was sold again, this time to a man named John Dumont. And while John considered Isabella to be very hardworking and very intelligent, his wife, Elizabeth, who you'll sometimes see referred to as Sally, I think that might be some name confusion (laughs) within the household, Uh, but Elizabeth didn't like her. The same was true of the household's white servants, who intentionally tried to get Isabella in trouble. One of her jobs was cleaning and peeling and boiling the family's potatoes, and one of the servants kept dropping ash into the pot while she wasn't looking specifically to get her in trouble. In her narrative, Isabella mostly attributes this hostility from Elizabeth Dumont as being because she wasn't raised in a slave-owning family, and she thought her paid servants were harder working and more trustworthy. But jealousy almost certainly played a role as well. All the photographs that we have of Sojourner Truth were taken in the later years of her life, but the young Isabella was described as attractive, willowy, and very tall. Her narrative talks about this time in her life in this way. Quote, From this source arose a long series of trials in the life of our heroine, which we must pass over in silence, some from motives of delicacy and others because the relation of them might inflict undeserved pain on some now living, who Isabel remembers only with esteem and love. That is one of those sentences that says a whole lot without saying anything specific. Yes. But it's people point back to it uh, when talking about, like, the parentage of her children and and what her life was like um, with this particular family. In 1815, Isabella started a relationship with a man named Robert who was enslaved at another farm in the area. She became pregnant, and she had a son named James who died as a baby, followed by a daughter named Diana, But Robert's owner refused to allow the two of them to get married because any children that Isabella had by him would become John Dumont's property rather than his. Basically, Robert's owner didn't want his property to add to the property of someone else. Dumont selected a man from his own enslaved workforce for Isabella to marry, a man named Thomas and he was significantly older than she was and had been married twice before, and they don't seem to have been particularly close. 
Isabella and Robert continued to see one another until they were caught and he was severely punished. After marrying Thomas, Isabella had three more children named Peter, Elizabeth, and Sophia, which might have been pronounced Sophia. All of them were named after her parents and siblings. Isabella was enslaved by the Dumont family from 1810 until her emancipation, which we will get to after a quick sponsor break. While she was enslaved by the Demont family, Isabella worked both in the home and in the fields and also acted as a wet nurse for Elizabeth Dumont's children. And this gave Isabella 13 children to look after. There were her five and Elizabeth's eight. But she had to put Elizabeth's children ahead of her own, and that might have been a factor in her son James's death when he was still a baby. Isabella's mother had also died suddenly the same year that Isabella was sold to the Dumonts. Her father had been one of the Hardenburg family favorites, and they had built a cabin for him and made some provisions for his care in his later years. But he outlived everyone who was expected to look after him, and he froze to death sometime after 1817. Yeah, the expectation was that her mother would just take care of him until the end of his life, but then she died uh, much earlier than, than he did, along with two other people that had been sort of tasked with trying to look after him. That same year, 1817, the state of New York passed a gradual emancipation law that would free people born before 1799 after a period of 10 years. There was a previous law that had been passed in 1799 that had done the same for people who were born after July 4th, 1799. But both Isabella and her father had been born well before that, so that law did not apply to either of them. Isabella's father lived long enough to know that emancipation was coming, but he was also in his 80s when the law was passed. He died before his own emancipation would come into effect. When the 1817 Gradual Emancipation Law was passed, John Dumont told Isabella that if she worked hard, he would free her a year early. And for the whole time she had been enslaved on the Dumont property, she had worked incredibly hard. Dumont liked to say that she could do the work of half a dozen other people. And she'd also been very loyal and very dedicated to him. For example, refusing to take food without permission, even when she or her children desperately needed it, because she wanted to behave always in a trustworthy way. Later on in her life, she would look back on this attitude with astonishment. But at the time, she seemed to honestly believe that slavery was the natural order of things and that the Dumont's treatment of her had earned her loyalty. After he made this promise to her, she started working even harder than she had before to the point that she cut off part of a finger while trying to work just to go faster until she could get it all done. She kept working in spite of that injury, but it did slow her down. And in 1826, as the date of her emancipation, her year-early emancipation, became closer, Dumont told her that because of the time she had lost to that injured hand, she would have to work that last year after all. Isabella tried to convince him to keep his promise, pointing out that she had kept working the whole time she was injured, even though sometimes she'd had to do different types of work from before. But Dumont refused to let her go. She ultimately decided that she would stay on long enough to finish spinning that year's wool and that then she would leave. But she wasn't sure how she should make her escape, so she asked God for guidance about what to do. It occurred to her that she should leave just before dawn, 
when there would be enough light for her to see, but when the household and the neighbors wouldn't really be out of bed yet. When she left, she took her youngest child, Sophia, with her. She went to the home of a man that she knew named Levi Rowe, and he directed her to a Quaker family, Isaac and Maria Van Wagener. We don't know if they pronounce that in the European way of Van Wagener, but we're going with Van Wagener. Uh, They sheltered her until Dumont came after her and accused her of running away. And she answered, No, I did not run away. I walked away by daylight, and all because you had promised me a year of my time. He kept insisting that she return with him, and she kept refusing to do it until Isaac von Wagner offered to buy her freedom for $20 plus $5 for her baby. Dumont agreed, and Isabella started going by the name Isabella von Wagner. The von Wagners considered her to be free, although she was working off the debt that had been incurred by buying that freedom. And not long after she began living with the Van Wagoners, Isabella learned that her son Peter, who John Dumont had sold earlier in the year, had been taken out of state. It was illegal in New York to sell enslaved people out of state, but Peter had changed hands a couple of times after being sold and was taken to Alabama. With the Van Wagoners' financial help, Isabella took the matter to court, which is widely cited as making her the first Black woman to win a lawsuit in the United States. She was successful, but Peter's return was traumatizing. By the time she got her son back, they had been separated for more than a year, and he didn't recognize her anymore. In all likelihood, he had also been coached to think that she was evil and that he was better off where he was in Alabama. He also had scars on his forehead and his cheek from injuries. And when he first saw his mother again, he said that these injuries had come from being kicked by a horse and from colliding with a carriage, but then he later on re- revealed that they had come from being beaten. Once she got her son back, Isabella's life had a period of relative safety and stability. Her conversations with God had been a daily occurrence for most of her life before this point. But once she and her children were safe and either free or about to become so, that became less of a focus. But that changed in 1827 during the holiday of Pinkster. Pinkster is a holiday that developed among enslaved Africans in Dutch New York in the 1700s, and it happened around the observance of Pentecost, which is also known as Whitsunday. In the Christian tradition, after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit came to the disciples during the Harvest Festival of Pentecost, and it's described in the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Today, Pentecost is observed as a Christian holiday 50 days after Easter Sunday. In Dutch New York, this Pentecost observance of Pinkster became a distinctly African-American holiday. It was a multi-day festival in which enslaved people from neighboring farms and communities got together to take a break from work, gather, eat, dance, play games, and celebrate. For some enslaved Africans, Pinkster had the religious aspects of Pentecost, but for others it was more of a secular holiday. Leading up to Pinkster 1827, Isabella had a premonition that John Dumont was going to come to the Van Wagoners and take her back with him. And she felt that she should go, and she got herself and Sophia ready. But as she was approaching his wagon, she had a sudden burst of insight that she described as a flash of lightning. 
she immediately knew that, quote, there was no place where God was not. She felt ashamed that she had lapsed in her daily talks with God and awestruck by the immensity of everything. By the time this vision passed, Dumont had left and she returned to her work. It was not long after this that her religious visions would lead her to leave rural New York and go to New York City. And we'll talk about that after a sponsor break. After this experience around Pinkster 1827, Isabella's religious life took a more outward turn. Her relationship with God had always been this really individual thing that was focused on her own prayers and her own experience. But afterwards, she joined a Methodist church and then an African Methodist Episcopal church. When Isabella moved to New York City in 1828, she attended the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. She was also a preacher in her own right. Her preaching was heavily influenced by the idea of perfectionism, which was described by Oneida community founder John Humphrey Noyes. Perfectionism is the idea that a person can become free from sin through religion and willpower. She also really devoted herself to mission work within the city, including ministering to sex workers and encouraging them to join an asylum that was known as the Magdalene Society. As far as I know, this was not similar to the Magdalene laundries that we talk about, which was sort of like a punishment place for fallen women. This was more like a shelter and halfway house for women who had been doing sex work and were leaving that life. Uh, and just because that name is so evocative, I wanted to make that clear. Um, while she was doing this work, she met a Presbyterian man named Elijah Pearson. And the Magdalene Society had grown out of an asylum for women that he had been running from his home, but which had faltered after the death of his wife. Isabella and Elijah became spiritual colleagues, with Isabella joining his religious circle and the two of them working together in charitable and religious missions. When he asked her if she'd been baptized, her answer was that she had by the Holy Spirit. This religious network eventually led Isabella to a man named Robert Matthews, who had taken the name Father Matthias, which is spelled Matthias. Some people might pronounce it that way. Most Germanic languages say Matthias, so we're going with that. And that's named after the disciple who replaced Judas after he betrayed Jesus. And he had been raised as a Presbyterian, but after his adoption of the name Matthias, he had begun describing himself as Jewish because Jesus and his disciples were all Jewish. When Isabella met Matthias, she said she, quote, felt as if God had sent him to set up the kingdom. He seemed to have this really deep and profound understanding of Scripture, and he looked to her like one of Jesus' disciples, like he physically looked like a picture of one of the disciples. She clearly thought he was genuine, although she did also introduce him to Elijah to get his opinion as well. Ultimately, Matthias established a religious commune known as the Kingdom, but it was controversial from the start. They had to move out of New York City and into Sing Sing, New York in 1833 after a dispute with the family of one of Matthias's followers led to a police raid and Matthias's arrest. Isabella supported Matthias through all of this, including convincing Elijah to help Matthias get released. Her support continued after the kingdom moved to Sing Sing, which is now known as Ozening. Yeah, they changed their name to distance themselves from the prison. 
Isabella's support of Father Matthias was really in spite of teachings that went directly against her and her own religious work. She was the kingdom's only Black member, but she did the overwhelming share of all of the work, including all the dirtiest and hardest tasks, with no compensation for any of this work at all. Matthias demanded that she and Elijah give up the Sabbath school that they had established outside of the kingdom. Matthias also preached that women's only role was to be completely obedient to men, and men who taught women were wicked, and women weren't allowed to preach. While they were in Sing Sing, he also started encouraging the kingdom's men to share their wives with him. Isabella did not approve of all of this wife-sharing, but she did continue to think that Matthias's religious work was genuine and important and that she was there to help him. The kingdom fell apart in 1835. Elijah Pearson had died under mysterious circumstances the year before. He had been ill for quite some time, but he died suddenly after eating two helpings of blueberries at dinner. Isabella was accused of poisoning him. The Folger family, who were living at the kingdom, accused her of poisoning them as well. All of these charges were baseless, though, and Isabella took the Folgers to court for slander, and she was awarded a $125 settlement. And it became clear in all of this that Matthias was not the holy man that he claimed to be. This could be a whole other episode that is just full of weirdness and scandal and Like, it has a lot of the hallmarks of religious communes where practices get very strange and unsettling to people. Uh, And this whole thing just caused a giant scandal that got a lot of sensationalized news coverage at the time. And Isabella was really mortified by all of it. She realized she had been wrong in her assessment of Father Matthias, and that really broke her trust in organized churches and in charismatic religious leaders. Isabella returned to New York City and tried to resume her religious work. She often had trouble making ends meet, especially after the Panic of 1837. She was trying to make her way as a preacher and charitable worker in a world in which many churches didn't allow women to preach at all. Her life made a major change once again on June 1st of 1843, and that's when she finally took the name Sojourner Truth. And that is what we will talk about in our next episode. Do you have listener mail for us? I sure do. So, uh, this listener mail is about a Saturday classic, uh, which a lot of times our Saturday classics are from back in the archive, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not things that we necessarily get into again because often we've already talked about them in other listener mails in the past. But this is a question <laughs> that I thought other people might have. This is an email from Lisa. Lisa says, I was looking forward to the additional Dickens podcast Sarah and Dublina twice mentioned would be coming. Once at the beginning of their podcast at about 2 minutes and 24 seconds into the rebroadcast and again at 23 minutes, 33 seconds. I just would like to say that telling us when specifically a thing happened in an episode is enormously helpful. So thank you for doing that. So what they said was that Dickens had multiple households to support. Say what? I definitely missed that in history and English lit class. However, when I put Charles Dickens in the search bar at Stuff You Miss in History website, I didn't find anything other than Charles Dickens slams Madonna a century and a half ago, which predates Sarah and Dublina's Dickens podcast and is a blog post. 
So I went back to their original date of the podcast on my Apple Podcast app and scrolled through the rest of the 2012 episodes. There was not a single additional one about Dickens. What happened to their promised additional episodes? And would you please add Charles Dickens's multiple households to your subject list? Thank you, Lisa. So this required a little bit of research. <laughs> Uh, because Sarah and Dublina have gone on to other jobs, and I I don't like to pester people who work somewhere else now about things from years ago. But according to a thread on Twitter from back in 2012, they had planned to do this other episode, which they obviously were intending to do in the one that we rebroadcast as a classic, but it turned out when they tried to get into it that there just wasn't enough information to make it work. I think what they were referring to is that later on in his life, Charles Dickens fell in love with a young woman named Ellen Turnin, who was acting in a play that he was working on. And then he went on to legally separate from his wife, but he didn't divorce her or get married to Ellen because it would have been way, way, way too scandalous at the time for somebody of his level of fame to do that. Uh, I found an article about it and there is a biography on her, but at the time that Sarah and Dublina recorded this episode, I think it was out of print, so they might not have been able to get access to it or even known that it existed, possibly. And I think that is what they were talking about. This may or may not become an episode in the future. Our list is extremely long. But if you were listening to that Saturday classic and were like, wait, I can't find this other episode that they are talking about, that is what happened. So thank you so much, Lisa, for sending us that email. Um, and uh, thanks to everybody who listens to our Saturday classics. Um, even though we don't always know the answers to questions about past episodes from the archive. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media as Myths in History. That is our Facebook and our Pinterest and our Instagram and our Twitter. You can come to our website at MythsInHistory.com where you will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on together, a searchable archive of every episode ever, and that link in the menu that says Paris Trip! Exclamation point. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 